Welcome to the Futurati Podcast. Any member of the Futurati is somebody who believes in the power of the future. We know there's a better world ahead, and we indeed have the power to make it so. In our podcast, we talk to the best minds in the world about the most urgent problems facing mankind today, and we hope you learn as much from them as we do. I'm Thomas Fry, a professional futurist and keynote speaker. And I'm Trent Fowler, a machine learning engineer and author. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati Podcast. Tonight, we're joined by Elaine Pofelt, who is an independent journalist and speaker specializing in careers and entrepreneurship. In 2018, she published a well-received book called The Million Dollar One-Person Business, Make Great Money, Work the Way You Like, Have the Life You Want, where she looks at how entrepreneurs are scaling to a million dollars in revenue prior to hiring any employees. If you enjoy this interview, please don't forget to like the episode and subscribe on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. Elaine, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Trent. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write about this particular sector? Sure. Well, I, I'm an um, entrepreneurship journalist. I've been covering entrepreneurship, startups, that sort of thing for many years. And I came across this trend in writing my blog for Forbes. I was um, I write five posts a month and I was running out of ideas for that month. And I started searching around for ideas on something I could cover. And I came across the Census Bureau's non-employer statistics, which sound really boring, and they are if you don't really analyze them, um, but they're about businesses with no payroll. And I was poking around and I noticed that there was an uptick in the number of businesses with no employees that were getting into the one to $2.49 million range. And I thought that's kind of interesting because being a journalist, I had hired a lot of freelancers, worked with graphic designers, a lot of solo entrepreneurs. They weren't getting to $1 million in right. revenue. So I thought, you know, what are they actually doing? And the way they break it down in the Census Bureau is by um, the industry code. It's called the NAICS code. So there's one for manufacturing, one for professional services, et cetera. And then they have subcodes for the you know, uh, engineering professional services business, for instance. And what was really interesting was it was across the board. It wasn't confined to just e-commerce. Um, in fact, professional services is one of the big ones. And this was back in 2013. I posted a very statistics-driven story because you can't find out from the Census Bureau who the entrepreneurs actually are because right. when you fill out those forms, it's confidential. And the post went viral and people started writing to me and saying, Elaine, that was really a cliffhanger. You didn't tell us any of the people who are doing this. I need to start a million dollar one person business. I need to know specifically what they're doing. And so I wrote a few more posts about the data because that's all I had. And I, in, in some of the posts, I said, if you are one of these entrepreneurs, please write to me because people are very curious about what you're doing. So they started writing to me and it was over the course of about a year. I heard from five and I, then I wrote this post where I profiled them and Alan Walton, who founded Spy Guy was one of the first ones. He uh, had an online spy camera store. So um, like if you uh, had an elderly parent and you're worried about the caregiver, maybe elder abuse or something like that, those kind of cameras. 
Um, there was Rachel Charlupsky. She ran the babysitting company, which she started it as a college student in Arizona, managed it from a BlackBerry, and she had like 2,500 babysitters <laughs> that were, um, they, prov they provided babysitting at, at events. So if, for instance, um, a sports team was at an arena and their wives wanted to watch the game and they brought their kids, they would have on-site childcare. Um, and then there was someone who had a newsletter. Um, he was a financial planner. Um, there was uh, Dan Mazuritsky, who is a fitness trainer. He was licensing out his method of training people to other trainers. Um, and so that post went really viral, like nothing I've ever written. I worked at Fortune Small Business Magazine. So we had quite a few viral stories, but this was like my biggest one ever. And I I thought, wow, that's super interesting, right? Because when you've written thousands of stories, you know, which one really connects with people? So then every time I found one of these people, I would, I would write about them and I kept learning more about them and their habits. And then that ultimately led to an agent seeing all those posts and suggesting that I write a book. And I wrote the million dollar one person business for Random House in January of 2018. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah. So Great it's story. yeah, it's it's pretty hard to imagine a, a million dollar one person business forty years ago. So what is it in the current technological landscape that makes something like this possible? Well, there's there's a lot of different moving parts changing at the same time. Trent, the cost of technology has come down a lot, um, and so you'll see a lot of businesses that once would have had to buy a server don't have to do that anymore because of cloud based technologies. Um, it, it, for people who are really young, they don't remember that. But I remember when um, it changed and venture capitalists would say they don't want to back certain companies because they don't need that much money anymore. And it was because of the servers going away. Um, so it means that the, the barrier to entry that was keeping a lot of people out of this has come down. But when you think about it, mobile phones, websites, Everybody has the, the ability to get those. They're very either inexpensive or free. Um, and, and you have the ability to get help very easily. You don't necessarily have to hire an employee or hire somebody where you live and work. You could go on Upwork or um, freelancer or people per hour or a specialized engineering site and get the talent you need. And it's very low commitment. Plus you have the ability to advertise on social media and on Google and doing Google ads. Uh, those those, those um, uh, kind of transitions have happened in the last couple decades here, which have made it quite, um, quite appealing to a lot more people. Uh, I ran across a, uh, oh, this is uh, over 10 years ago, but we ran across a taxi driver down in Orlando, and he had started a pizza business, but he didn't own a pizza store or anything, and all he did is he created a business name and put out flyers, and he, he hung them all over in the hotels, put them everywhere, and then if he got an order that came in, he had uh, housewives uh, throughout the city and he would just call them up, have them bake the pizza and then he would deliver it. And, uh, this is, uh, it's, it's actually interesting because during COVID we've, we've seen some of these ghost kitchens crop oh, up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it's, it's similar, but he was, uh, kind of leading the pack there, which, <laughs> uh, I always thought that was intriguingly entrepreneurial of him to
Oh, absolutely, Thomas. It's it's interesting that you bring that up because that that has been a game changer is the access to social media. So if people are doing something that works, they can amplify it very easily. You know, you take out a Facebook ad, it works, and then just throw more money at it. Then all of a sudden you're in front of a much bigger audience. There are other things that have happened too. Um, for instance, um, one of the categories that some of the businesses are in is manufacturing. It used to be that you had to have a, your own plant to be a manufacturer. You'd yeah. need to have connections to get the resources. Now you just go on Alibaba. You can be a manufacturer from your living room. You know, if you're doing a food product, you get a co-packer. You don't really have to have the infrastructure yourself. And a lot of this is, is from, from digital. Uh, another thing that has changed is the sharing of information. There's so many podcasts, communities, um, WhatsApp chats. I mean, there's so many different ways that people are educating each other. That information wasn't available before to people. So now the everyday person can get it. And there are a lot of people that maybe don't realize that they have entrepreneurial talent, but when they're exposed to these things and they, you know, they listen to a podcast and they, they've always had a business idea, but now they know a little bit about how to get it started from hearing about somebody else. That's a game changer. And I think, I think we keep finding with each generation, the younger generations are becoming more entrepreneurial. I don't know that they're necessarily more entrepreneurial in their DNA than any other generation. It's just that they've had so much exposure and it's so much easier to break into it that more people are trying it and, it, and it's really transforming the, work, the working world. It really is because a lot of young people don't want to be told what to do, so they start their own business. <laughs> Absolutely. Why can't they be told what to do? I mean, that's it's, it's an interesting thing because we, there are a lot of things that we assumed coming up in the workplace that had to be true, you know, like the boss cracking the whip and everybody sitting in an office in their cubicles and you got to work your way up and Dilbert. pay your dues, all that stuff. The Dilbert life path. Yeah. Why, why? Why does it have to be that way? I mean, it serves the people on top. It doesn't serve everybody else. Why can't it be collaborative? And I think you have really young people asking that question and not necessarily even young people. A lot of people are asking the question and now they, they don't have to go along with it. They can have their own business and run it the way they want. And uh, I'm working on my next book, Tiny Business, Big Money. And I'm um, in the middle of one of the chapters about how people are organizing their businesses. And Tiny Business, Big Money looks at businesses the next stage beyond the million dollar one person business. It's They have small teams, so it could be a few employees. In some cases, they have a large group of contractors that are almost quasi employees where it's a little more of a cohesive team, not just like sending something out to the designer and then they get it, you know, it's, they're interacting with each other and they do things differently. Some of them don't have any meetings. Some of them conduct the whole business on Slack. And as I've been interviewing them and fact checking, it, it's really opened my eyes to all the different ways you can run a business. You don't have to run it like it's General Motors if it's your three-person business. And it, that's so refreshing to me because that, that old system of working was making people sick. I mean, with stress and just literally sick from, you know, sitting at their desk all day. And it's so unhealthy. This is, it, it's so much better for people, I think, to run businesses in these freer, looser ways. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, I, I, I want to get into that. But w one question I had was that, 
it's interesting to me that some solar solopreneurs, solo entrepreneurs are having so much success in manufacturing. So you brought that up as well. I was wondering if you could like walk us through a case study. It's just sort of hard for me to imagine starting a manufacturing company in Boulder and outsourcing the manufacturing. Like, are they flying to China? Like you probably have a couple of case studies and I wonder if you might walk us through one of the more interesting ones. Sure. Well, one really interesting one, um, I just reconnected with her for Tiny Business. Her name is Anna Gavia, and she's a woman in her 20s. She was a medical student in Australia, and she always loved sketching, and she decided she wanted to make a little extra money, and she decided to um, create her own bikini company, in part because she only had $200 to invest in the business as a student <laughs> and she couldn't afford the fabric for a dress. So she sketches this one bikini and she goes online and she researches manufacturing plants and she calls around. She is a med student, so she does, she's good at research, finds one that says they will do a sample for her on her budget and is willing to do a small run if she can get any order. So then they make the one sample in a size medium. She puts it up on Instagram, on an Instagram ad, and has set up a little Shopify store so that she can take money in to take orders. So she gets like 100 orders for the bikini. Wow. And she has the money from the women who bought the bikini to pay the manufacturer and she does a little run. So this is how she's built the whole business. It's now over a million dollar business. And each bikini, she tests it on her audience. So she doesn't waste any money making bikinis that she fell in love with, but no one else wants to wear. <laughs> and I thought, I mean, that's amazing, right? She, I mean, she's only in her twenties, had no startup capital whatsoever, except the 200 bucks. And now she's got this business that's in, the, in Australia and the United States, and she has unlimited potential to grow that. And it, it's a whole new way of doing business. It's, it's almost like crowdsourcing the idea. It's like, so if you order this, then I can afford to pay the manufacturer to print more of them. And so uh, it's like you're creating a market almost. Yeah, you too can be in the bikini business. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> almost, you can do it with a lot of different products. And it's, it's just making sure that there's actually demand. Um, it's taking some of the risk out of it because that's what keeps people from starting businesses, fear of risk. They don't. Nobody likes to waste their own money, right? It's hard to earn money if you had a job, especially, and you earned it that way. So this avoids that. So let me let me try the try this. I, I I talk a lot about it in my presentation about the coming wave of micro industries, and um, one of the the topics I explain is that we're going to take existing industries and they're going to splinter off into a lot smaller niche industries. So let's take for example the shoe industry. Every year, uh, 21 billion pair of shoe, shoes are sold around the world. That's roughly seven pair or three pair of shoes for every person on the planet. And, um, and so uh, my speculation is, is that in just a few years, you'll be able to take your smartphone and scan your foot and, and get a three-dimensional repre representation of what your foot looks like. You'll be able to send that in to um, a shoe manufacturer it needs to be a lot of mom and pop shops that specialize just in shoes for people that play lacrosse or people that are mountain climbers or people that are amputees or left-handed or play organ or something that is unique and different. <clears throat> and these mom and pop shoes 
are, are going to embed features like extra sensors into it. They'll have pores that open and close in expanding polymeric gel packs that make it so you're perfectly comfortable all the time. So you can buy these hyper-individualized shoes for three to $400 a pair. And for a mom-and-pop business, you only need to sell a few thousand a year, and you're, you're well off on a million-dollar trail there. Um, that's, that's one that I've been speculating on. I think that's that started to take off a little bit. Uh, it's like, I think it's called mass customization where you'll have uh, like certain shirt companies have done that type of thing. Yeah, right. And right. You're, you're talking about a more advanced level of it, but it definitely seems like that that's in on the horizon. And there's a lot of opportunity to be a niche player. I mean, that's what I've seen with these folks. They're really niching down. Um, one of the other companies um, that I found really fascinating, Julian O'Hayan, he he does something, it's called Black Paris, but the um, it's B-L and it's like a V-C-K, Paris. And um, he had started the business with a partner who was in Australia. He was in Belgium at the time. And he started just doing black iPhone cases. And he had, he, he built up a little following on Instagram. He was a designer and he would put up pictures of like black M&Ms or just iconic things, built a following around that. Then he started selling these products. They were very simple. Then he started doing his own streetwear brand. And when I spoke with him this week, what he had done was branched out from selling the streetwear online to a partnership um, with these different store companies that will, they'll actually run the store and they take a cut in his sales. He doesn't have to own the store. He doesn't have to have employees. He just supplies the merchandise right. and they order it. It's all automated. They order it from his online site for merchants. So he's got like a very low um, burden in terms of structure of the business. And he's been financing growth by, doing digital products, which have a very low cost. Um, so like on your iPhone screen, you know how it has a certain look and feel. There's a way you, I, I don't know the name of it, but you can upload something that makes it look pretty, you know? And it's, so of course he uploaded it with his black Paris designs and people pay money for that. And he sells it in multiples. So that's bringing money coming in so that he can expand the company. And I thought, wow, that's, that's amazing, right? Like he's come up with something. He's obviously got the design talent. People will pay him money for that. But now that now gives him an engine to finance this whole brand. And when you think about the old brands of the past, right? Like what it would take. You know, I, I used to, at one point, I was a, a fashion editor at, at um, Women's Wear Daily. And all those fashion designers would, you know, it was very hard for them to get financing, Right. To get, you know, or to get into a store, then to get paid by the store and they'd be waiting 90 days, you know, and it, it's completely changed the game so that, you know, this guy and his buddy who the, the other partner was 20 years old, you know, they, they can do something really big you know, with, with their business. And it's very niche. It's, you know, it's just all black stuff. Right. Right. So. A lot of what's driven this is the rise of new technology. So cloud computing, which obviates the need to rent a bunch of servers and social media, which obviates the need to have a huge marketing budget. Have you thought anything about how something like 3D printing or some of the other new technologies might impact this trend? Well, that that definitely can impact the trend. I mean, any new means of production is relevant to this because if, if the cost of producing things is coming down, 
and everyday people, like we have a 3D printer in our house that my kids use, you know, if, if the average person can get it, then the average person can be creative with it. And there's really unlimited uses once people put their creativity towards it. So I think th these new technologies are only, it's not even that new anymore. They're, they're only gonna increase this trend. And when people see one person doing things, then other people will do it. I mean, that's one reason I don't really feel like it's mandatory that everybody has to get to 1 million in revenue. But I did think it was important to share that information with people that it's possible because it's like the four minute mile, right? People right. wouldn't attempt to run the four minute mile if they didn't think it was humanly possible. But once you know that it is, then you could say, well, that's actually a reasonable goal. Let me see what I can do to get to that point. And don't forget, if you're bringing in 1 million in revenue, depending on the industry, maybe you're bringing home between two and $400,000 after all your costs are paid, your taxes are paid, et cetera. So you're not making tons and tons of money. You're, you're earning a substitute for a very good corporate job. Yeah. $400,000 a year is not bad. Yeah. Not not, bad it's not all. bad, but, but it's not, it, it's not the, sometimes people think it's like you're taking home a million, right. you know, they, they forget there are costs to these businesses. Yeah. It occurs to me that every emerging technology is going to have their first million dollar solopreneur. <clears throat> the uh, every VR AR application, every uh, autonomous vehicle that comes out, um, every um, flying drone, every um, uh, whether it's three D printers or sensors or IoT devices, um, all of these are going to have their million dollar solopreneur, and I think that's really exciting. You could have 3D printers to print the pizzas and then an autonomous car to deliver them. And then one of your, your, your cab driver in Orlando. Yeah. And then a robot to collect the money from the people <laughs> and shake them down if they don't have the money. And right. <laughs> well, so, you know, some of it is it, it's, it's surprisingly it's technologically driven, but it's it's lower tech than one would think, um, you know, one example, I, I, the book just came out in paperback in January. And one of the newer case studies is Steve Ferreira who runs Ocean Audit. And he mm -hmm. he worked in corporate, he was a, um, he audited shipping bills. So if say JCPenney ordered, you know, hundreds of thousands of shirts from overseas and the shipping company made a mistake on the bill, he's the guy who would catch it. And so he, what his business is, is he goes to JCPenney. It's a public document. He can get these, um, when, when they post these bills, it's public. So he, he'll find, the, find errors, goes to JCPenney and says, I found a $250,000 error. I will collect it for you, but you have to give me 50%. Wow. Right? So the company's getting found money. They're still getting $125,000. Um, but it's a good business. He brings in almost $2 million a year. So he was doing that manually for years. Then it occurred to him, well, why don't I create a software to help me with this? Because he was a, a top expert in finding these errors. So he knew how to direct the developers. So now he's made the business easier to run. It's more scalable. And if someone like say he wanted to have a franchisee or something like that with the software, they don't have to have the same knowledge that he has. And so sometimes it's things like that. Like he's a professional services firm, right? He's an auditor and he's made it into a tech firm, but it's still just him 
and his contractors. Yeah, generally, generally the way you scale a business is you leverage products or you leverage people. Um, you you can license some things or, or rent things, but uh, generally it's done with leveraging people or products. And so um, to the to the extent that you don't want to manage a lot of people, then you leverage products, and that's generally the way it works. And if your product is a service, um, then you can go off in lots of different directions. Well, it's hard with service businesses sometimes because you get into the whole trading time for dollars. Right, right, right. And, and it's where technology um, is helping people because they can do things like create informational products, mm-hmm. like like a course. You know, now the, the course area is a little bit saturated, but there's, you know, Kajabi and Teachable and Podia and a whole bunch of other platforms that are usable by an average person who might have professional knowledge of one subject area. So now they've got it. It's a kind of a tech enabled service firm. And a lot of them who do well wind up getting away from providing the service because they feel they're getting their message out at scale and they focus more on marketing the actual product. I saw a really good example of this. I had to write an article for creditcards.com. I write for them sometimes. And, um, they sent me to this seminar. It was like a webinar about a really obscure change in credit card law. And it was these two attorneys in Washington, DC were holding the webinar. I had to pay like $300 to go to it. And so did everybody else. Well, I get there, there's 600 people on the call for one hour, right? And they're airing it again, two other times for the same price. So now these two attorneys, no matter what their hourly rate was, it wasn't the same hourly rate they were making for that. They had hired a webinar company. So there was some cost to that. But they were some of the leading experts on this area of credit card law. So now they were scaling the knowledge sharing in a way that was very, very lucrative. And I thought, wow, there's a lot of people that have that kind of knowledge of something that they kind of geek out on in their in their professional career. And if you can figure out what that thing is, and if people pay you money, in this case, people needed to know about it. It was important to credit card transactions that they were making. And there was some compliance stuff where you'd get fined if you didn't follow the law. But if you have something like that and you do a webinar, it doesn't have to be a scammy, you know, go to my six other webinars and you'll you'll have a Maserati kind of webinar. It could be a serious <laughs> one like these guys. It was right. this was all. It was a dull webinar, but it didn't matter. It was it was necessary information. And I think it's very empowering for people that are, you know, it's hard running a professional services firm. People, you know, working with so many clients day in, day out, juggling that with managing the business and everything else. So this is a way where you could get a quick hit. Maybe you make $20,000 extra from, you know, five or 10 hours of work preparing for the webinar. And then that's kind of game changing. What if you do it once a month? Once you get in a good routine with a webinar company, it doesn't have to be a webinar. It could be something else, but it's that whole concept of packaging your knowledge into a product. You could still run the, the service business. Um, you know, another uh, business that was really interesting to me, Steve Sudell, he's a, um, a physical therapist in California, and he, he's an athletic guy, he does CrossFit, he specializes in that area of physical therapy. 
he was a football player before and he hurt his neck and he still had neck pain. So he created this thing called a neck hammock. It's like literally a little hammock that, that like hooks over a doorknob. Yep. And it's like a traction device. And he raised the money for it on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And he wound up building that into more than a million dollar one man business. And he wow. just sold it actually. Um, I'm gonna be writing an update story about it. Um, but he, he built it quite a bit while still running the physical therapy practice. And he, he actually really loves physical therapy and he just continued doing it. But this it brought a whole new entrepreneurial dimension to his life. And he actually plans to continue doing physical therapy because he likes working with the patients. And it's also a good laboratory for other ideas. I, I, I think that's really just, it's, it's very powerful to think that you can combine that, you know, the, the serving of your customers with being an inventor or, you know, a knowledge um, business. Yeah. And in, in some of these cases, they're looking for talent in places that other people simply don't care to examine. So I, I didn't write the guy's name down, but he runs the a business hand, like co contracting out people who know how to handle hazardous materials. And a, a lot of his contractors are in their like 60s and 70s. They're like older people kind of in the twilight of their careers. But they're I mean, they're not ready to be put out to pasture yet. They want to be out there, you know, doing the job. And so when most people are preparing to be sort of pushed out the door in retirement, these guys are billing for $300 an hour to help these companies get rid of toxic materials. I thought that was really interesting as well. Oh my gosh. Are you talking about in, in my book, the um, Chad Patchkey? Because there, there, oh, it was a similar, actually, maybe it's a different book, uh, different um, case study, but Chad Patchkey is um, a consultant who works in, in um, the oil and gas industry. Basically he helps oil plants not blow up. <laughs> that's a good thing yeah yeah it's a very good thing and and so he 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 has five children and he, you know, he wanted to have a business that and i think he had like four in college at the same time god oh, bless him right yeah. and, and and um and he wanted to start a business that was going to bring in enough to meet his overhead he brought in all these older consultants. They were all baby boomers who were kind of at the stage of life where they wanted to be able to travel and, you know, scale back a little bit, not have all the stress of corporate. And it was the same thing. He was billing them out a minimum of $175 an hour, but his highest billing consultant is considered the kind of godfather of their industry. He's 75 years old. I think he built them out at either 300 or $350 an hour. Oh, wow. And 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 that was talent that in, in, when you look at corporate, it, there's so much age discrimination, it's rampant. People like that would have a number on their back, you know, be, no matter how valuable they were, but he's like, no, these guys know their stuff and they're extremely valuable in, in what we do. And money isn't that much of an object in their industry because if an oil plant blows up, I mean, think about the, like yeah. the repercussions of that, right. they'll pay $300 an hour to have the best guy. Yep. And right. so I thought that was really brilliant because they, I mean, these guys are smart. They're no less smart than they were when they were 40, but companies treat them that way. So that's something with the one person business where they're all contractors too. And that was part of his thinking was some of these guys have pensions and things like that. So he had a startup. So if he, if he couldn't pay them in exactly 30 days in the beginning, 
he knew that they had other income coming in and he would pay them, you know, in 40 days maybe, but it took a little pressure off of him in a brand new business because there's an unpredictable element. Like you don't know, are your clients going to pay you on time and what other expenses might there be in the business that you didn't think of until you're actually doing it. And um, that's a very good business model. And there's so many people out there who are over like in tech, people who are over 40 are basically discriminated against. So they're, they're youthful, you know, they're, there's people of all ages that are able to work till very advanced ages today. Yeah. I have one doctor who's 89 years old, who's one of my best doctors. I'm not kidding. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Back in, back in 1998, 99, there was a lot of entrepreneurs that got into the game of solving Y2K problems and for corporations, anything that came through that had Y2K on it got rubber stamped and passed through because nobody wanted to get caught with their pants down. And so there was a, a lot of, uh, well, fly-by-night operations that just came out of the woodwork uh, promising to solve all the Y2K problems. And it must have worked because we didn't have a Y2K problem. Right. <laughs> yeah, that sort of never materialized. I remember it was like this big panic and then oh yeah. It, Nope. No, nothing ever happened from it. Yeah. And there's a lot of hype around the danger associated with it. Now we're going to have a similar problem like that coming up with, with quantum computing, because we're, we're going to have quantum computers that are going to be able to hack all encryption systems that we currently have. So we're going to have to upgrade all of our computers to have, uh, quantum encryption systems uh, incorporated into them. So there, there may be a wave of entrepreneurs that jump into that one as well. That's a good opportunity for listeners, right? If you have those skills. <laughs> That's true. Somebody should start a startup accelerator for quantum computing. And yeah, help somebody these companies should do bring that. Their products to market. <laughs> um, what's, the, what's the theoretical ceiling for one of these companies? So in, in your book, you interviewed Eric Scott, who's a principal at Founders Fund in San Francisco. And he routinely asks himself when a one person firm is going to be acquired for a billion dollars. So what do you, and it sounds like you're, you're doing a, a book on, on tiny businesses as well, big money. So what do you think about that? Like how high could someone go with, with a business like this? I think about that a lot. I, I, I think it's unlimited because we have ways now to, you know, people say 10x, 100x, 1000x things that didn't exist before. And we don't really know what's coming. So in five or 10 years, who knows what methods of leveraging or amplifying things will will exist. So you're, you're saying you're saying that if I offered you a billion dollars, you'd sell your business right now? <laughs> I don't think you'd want it. It's a lot of work. <laughs> 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 but, but it's um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's a, it's a very interesting question. Be, I mean, the other thing is new types of businesses might come about. Like we have AI and machine learning and other, other types of technologies that might become very accessible to the average person. And once once that happens, similar to like the iPhone and the website, right? Like everybody takes those things for granted but those were not available to the average person years ago. They just weren't. And I mean, you couldn't make your business global years ago. That's the internet was what allowed people to go global. So who, who knows, you know, I I think we're going to see really interesting things going on in terms of 
very low numbers of people achieving very, very big things. And some people could say, well, you know, that's bad because now robots are taking our jobs. But I look at it a totally different way. I feel like this means that everybody who wants to can have their own business and it's not confined to just the elite people who have access to capital. It means anybody can do it. And it means they can also opt out of systems that are not fair to them. So if you're an older worker and it's really not fair that you're 45 and you can't get a job in Silicon Valley, you don't have to be begging for a job. You can just start your own business and use your own knowledge and excel and there's no ceiling on what you can do or who you can work with. Because when, when you have your own business, clients, I don't think they care about the same things as bosses do. They care if you can get the job done. Like right, I like right. my 89 year old doctor. He's a great doctor. I don't care what age he is. I just care that he's the best doctor, you know? And so it's, it's, a, it's a completely different mindset and it's very, very freeing for people. You can also work the way that you want. If you, like we saw with this whole pandemic, they were saying it's, it's a women's recession. There are a lot of women with small children that were forced out of the workforce basically because of online school. And they just couldn't manage that on top of their jobs. Well, if you have your own business, you probably could because you could flex things a little bit. You do some of your work on the weekend or do it at night. It, it's not ideal, but to get through a crisis, right. you could do it and still have your income coming in and still be a good parent and be available to your small children if you if they need you. And it, I, I, to me, that's a tremendous liberating force. Yeah. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. What, what are some of the broader cultural and political and economic ramifications of this trend. So if businesses can't age discriminate, then that will be a draining of some of the talent pool, right? As people start their own businesses, you know, women might exit some of these bigger corporations to start their own companies that might put some pressure on corporations to get their act together. Like, like how do you see this playing out? Have you given that any thought? Well, I definitely think it, it's going to raise the bar for employers because it used to be that employers were competing just against other companies for talent. But if you're competing against this whole other option of somebody working for themselves, making really good money, working the way they like, being able to go mountain biking in Boulder at lunchtime if they want to, and, yeah. and living the way they want, the bar is pretty high. Yeah. In terms of the, getting the best people, I mean, there are going to be people that say, I want to phone it in, like, just give me a job on payroll. I don't really want to, you know, invent new products. I just need a job, a day job, because I'm a musician at night or something like that. Right. You know, they, they, you know, you, you, you'll, I think you, you'll probably get the, the very, very ambitious people wanting to start their own businesses. Now, some people who are very ambitious do want to be on payroll because you need to be on a team to do what they do. So you'll still get those people that, that really need to be part of a group in order to achieve the results that they want. But it definitely puts a little bit of pressure on, on employers. Um, I do think it could be a force for diversity and inclusion um, in terms of when people are discriminated against, they don't have to take it anymore, right? They could go out and start their own business and not deal with any of that. 
And you see that women and people of color are the fastest growing groups of people starting businesses. I don't think that's an accident. I think people realize their lifespan is a certain length of time and progress is happening, but it's very glacial. And are you going to wait 40 years before you're allowed to be promoted by someone you might actually know more than? Uh, a lot of people are saying, no, I'll go start my own business and get it to a million dollars or get it to 500,000 and encouraging. deal with yeah. any of that. Yeah. So it's, it's occurred to me that uh, there's, there's nobody teaching this. There's nobody teaching you how to do it. Um, or, or very few people anyway. The uh, colleges tend to frown on this idea of teaching people how to be solopreneurs or freelancers because if you take that course and you tend to drop out of college. Um, <laughs> true, true. But, but, or it's hard to sell to parents too, right? Like if you, because I have four kids uh, who are going to go to college <laughs> soon and you think about what the tuitions are and then you think, I hope my kid gets a job and they can pay the student loans, right? right. It, you know, if you say they're going to be a freelancer, parents are not as familiar with that you could actually make better money as a freelancer than in a job, but right. they'll be worried that the kid won't be able to support themselves. Um, so it's it's it, it's a hard sell to the people paying the tuition bills too. Yeah, but the idea of uh, running the business of you, that you're a, a solopreneur, you're an entrepreneur, that you you suddenly you have to learn how to price your services. You have to uh, learn what service you want to offer, what um, what problems you're trying to solve, what um, uh, how to negotiate a deal, how to write a contract, uh, how to set up your accounting books, how to how to buy insurance for your solopreneur business. Um, uh, how to network with other people and how to do all of these these things and you have to have such a variety of hats that you're wearing all the time so it's it's challenging to be able to do that as an individual because typically you have skills in certain areas but not skills in other areas you like to do this kind of work but you hate doing that kind of work and um, and so the stuff that you don't like to do tends to suffer that part of the business and so you need to uh, I don't know, hire partial people or help others that can help out with that. Um, but it, it occurs to me that there's, there'd be a huge market for the, the how-to version of what you're talking about here. And uh, is that where you're going next with, with all of this? Well, there, there's, there's a lot of people teaching this sort of thing. But one of the things I've done since the book came out was when I've done book events, I'll do panels with the entrepreneurs from the book in, you know, if they live in that city where I've been going and people can actually, and, and they, they're, they've pretty much been free. People can talk to them and ask them questions about things. I, I think a lot of people need to plug into other people in their industry because there isn't really a cookie cutter, like this is how you run a million dollar one person business in any industry. I could, I could come up with something like that, but it, it, it would be so general. It, it, it wouldn't really apply. I think, you know, if you're running an e-commerce business, you need to learn from other e-commerce sellers. There are a lot of summits, like there's one in e-commerce called the seven figure seller summit. And there are different people that work in those fields that are teaching other people how to do things. So I think it's once you start getting plugged into different podcasts and summits, you can learn a lot of the specifics of okay. doing this. And, and you also learn about what things people are outsourcing to your point, Thomas, like I hate bookkeeping. 
And I remember it was like a beautiful Saturday. I'm entering all this stuff in QuickBooks. My kids wanted to do something and I'm getting really mad at myself that I couldn't get it done during the week. Finally, a podcaster actually told me he was using Bench. You just outsource it. It's AI powered. You don't even have to enter anything in QuickBooks. They enter everything for you. It's $200 a month for me. It's so worth it. It is so worth it because I can make a lot more than $200 in 10 hours of time that I was entering all that stuff into my QuickBooks, right? So you, I think you have to look at things that way. And if you're really not gonna learn it well, like I just was never gonna learn how to do my books properly. I was not interested in it. I'm a writer. I wanna get better at writing. I wanna do that stuff. Then, then as you have revenue coming into the business, you could say, well, I'm gonna outsource this one pain point. And then, you know, maybe I could get by updating my own website for a while. But then as the business gets bigger, you could say, well, you know, I'm okay at updating my website, but I actually need a real designer to do this. And, you know, maybe I spend a thousand bucks, get it looking really good. It's well worth it. And that that's what I see people doing in these million dollar one person businesses is they gradually put systems in place for either automation to do things or contractors to do things. And then in tiny business, I'm looking at the ones that have grown a little beyond that. And they have a a little team of people that are kind of working together on things. So if they um, say they outsource a podcast, maybe they, you know, they have a team of people to record it, to create those little icons, to promote it on social media. Maybe a VA is writing to all the guests to ask them to fill out the bio form and send in a headshot. You guys probably have all this in place. Those are the things that allow people to scale. If they're sitting there slogging through all that work themselves, they burn out and the business won't grow. I mean, a lot of this is like kind of the e-myth, but but this is for for a digital age because so much is free and easy now. It doesn't you don't have to hire employees to do things. And that, you know, you can hire employees. Sometimes it makes sense to do that, but it's it's certainly not mandatory. And since employees are the biggest cost of many businesses, that democratizes the whole uh, access to starting a business because you don't need to have a bank loan to fund all those salaries and things. You don't need to raise capital in Silicon Valley, which only a very small demographic is, is very successful at that. Anybody right. anybody can do you know get a contractor on Upwork if they start having revenue coming in. Seems like that. There might be a niche for somebody who can provide some of this as infrastructure and like guide them through the process. A sort of one-person startup accelerator for million-dollar one-person businesses. You could. I mean, there are people. Some of these, some of the entrepreneurs are doing that, and there's actually been a really interesting trend recently where some of them are going out and raising funds to acquire other million-dollar, uh, not technically one-person business, but very small, like Amazon businesses, and creating a little stable of them. And then applying their best practices to things like marketing or the back end, the financial side. And maybe they keep on the original entrepreneur as an employee for a while, or they just buy them out and they put their own managers on top of it. Um, But some of them have created little incubators and accelerators for small groups of, of businesses. That's really interesting. So one interesting fact you throw into the introduction is just how global the solo entrepreneur is. 
And as of 2018, 53% of entrepreneurs in Brazil are operating without employees. And 30% of entrepreneurs in Madagascar, of all places, are operating without employees. And if you broaden that out to include the gig economy um, or, or the sharing economy, you find that the United States and South Korea and Chile and Israel are all doing quite well. What do you think is driving that trend? So I think we tend to think of entrepreneurship as being a quintessentially American phenomenon. So is this organic? It's just it's cropping up in these countries or is it maybe the result of American influence abroad? There's different types of entrepreneurship. And I I know what study you got that from. Um, (laughs) The Global Entrepreneurship Monitor. Good, good, uh, Good research. There's necessity driven entrepreneurship where people need to eat. You know what I mean? And and there are no jobs or something about their life circumstances makes it hard for them to get a job. You know, maybe they're a mother with small children and they need to bring in an income, but they have to have the children with them when they're working. Um, and then there's opportunity driven entrepreneurship. So in the US, the European countries, some of the wealthier nations, people will say they started a business because they saw an opportunity. And it's often a combination of the two things like the person sees an opportunity and they are the breadwinner for their family. So they, they need to start a business that makes real money in order to maintain that responsibility as breadwinner. Um, so it, it's a lot of different factors rolled into one. Um, but in some of the countries like Madagascar, for instance, I would venture that a lot of people, it's necessity. Um, they, maybe they need a job and they're creating their own job. Yeah, certainly in January when I was in Nigeria, you, as you drive down the streets, there's lots of people selling things on the streets um, and because traffic is terrible there and they have potholes everywhere. Traffic does not go very fast. And so that's a perfect environment to, <laughs> to get people to change from three miles an hour down to zero and buy something and then resume their three-mile-an-hour trek. Um, yeah, so that uh, that's probably entrepreneurship of necessity out there. Um, and I've seen this in other countries around the world as well. Uh, but a lot, lot of um, enterprising people when uh, push comes to shove. Well, they're spotting an opportunity and, and filling a market need, which is the basis, you know, the basis of every single business, right? You've got to have something to sell that people want to buy. Right. And, and are, you know, not just want to buy, but are willing to actually buy it. Um, and so a lot of these folks are very smart. One nice thing is technology is helping them make those businesses easier. There are different apps to help farmers in um, different countries find out the best price of seeds and things like that. And that's helping people in less developed economies to run more efficient businesses. So that's another area that's going to be really interesting because the, the mobile phones are so empowering to people. They don't even need to have a computer to take advantage of technology. And who knows where that's going to lead, right? That I mean, I, right. I think it's a tremendous force for change that we're only beginning to see. I mean, the other thing is political changes sometimes usher in new opportunities. I remember interviewing a woman, she was from a a formerly socialist country and she had won a big entrepreneurship competition and it was with a social venture. Um, And I said to her, well, your parents must be so proud of you, you know, that you won this global competition. And she said, well, not, not really. And I said, they're not proud of you. And she said, well, 
they're socialists. They don't know what to tell their friends that I'm a capitalist. <laughs> but so you have these new generations, you know, in, in countries where it wasn't even available. And then, you know, that that's going to be interesting too, to see, see what happens. Um, it, you know, what is the spin on, on running a business in countries that didn't embrace capitalism originally? Yeah, let, let me tell you about this one business model that I came up with, and and actually Trent hates this idea, but it's it's the idea of uh, in in the not too distant future we're going to have video shirts that we're wearing, and so these video shirts will enable people, and these shirts look out as much as other people are looking in. So as you're wearing these video shirts, you will have uh, different advertisement, different messages that are programmed into it, and so it's constantly changing. And so whenever it can detect two eyeballs looking at it, that counts as an impression. And it might pay you seven cents or three cents <laughs> or two cents. So it's human pop-ups. Yeah. Yeah. So oh so so your job then uh, as an individual is to walk around and get noticed as much as possible. And then you have the potential of getting revenue coming in from a thousand different companies in a single day. And uh, so it's to your advantage to walk around and act like a total jackass and, and attract attention. Or be uh, nude in traffic. That, that uh, would yeah, be another that thing. would work or, too. Or yeah. streak at a baseball game. Yeah, I think yeah. civilization would collapse approximately 18 months later. <laughs> you know what, Thomas, you're actually, you're... Um, you're onto something there. There's this whole trend of micro influencers. This oh, is yeah. one thing I'm seeing with the e-commerce entrepreneurs. They realize to get Kim Kardashian to, you know, feature their product is going to cost a lot of money right. on her Instagram feed. So they're going to just everyday people that have 30 followers or hundred followers and asking them to spread the word and giving them little codes and things so that, it, it can be traced back to them and they make a little bit of money from it, mostly through, you know, through their social sites. And it's, it's a similar thing, you know, with just the average person it, being a promoter of these brands. And, you know, some people don't want to be a human billboard as, <laughs> and, and, you know, as you might imagine, but, but, but I think for people that are already on social media, right, they're putting up their content for free, at least maybe they'll get some money out of it. And, um, earn a little extra so that that it, it, there will probably be some interesting spins on that whole idea of letting everyday people use their influence yeah. to help brands grow well, what do i know yeah so you, you have you have elaine's blessing uh, yeah well, one, one thing i'm curious about is how culture interacts with entrepreneurship so you sort of alluded to this earlier with this this young lady who's won a global entrepreneurship country in a, a competition in a formerly socialist country so i wonder if you've looked into that at all like how, how does entrepreneurship and solo entrepreneurship cash out in south korea as opposed to south africa as opposed to south dakota there's um, a study that the, um, it's Jedi report. I'm forgetting what it stands for, but it's a global entrepreneurship study. Zoltan Ox, who was at, I think, um, London School of Economics at the time. He, he's the guy who runs it. Um, I, now he's at Georgetown and he studies entrepreneurial ecosystems around the world. And one of the most interesting things he said to me was the measure of how much a culture prizes entrepreneurship can really be boiled down to, would a mother be happy if her child became an entrepreneur in that country? And I thought that's really brilliant, right? Yeah. Because an American mother 
would think, oh, he'll be the next Mark Zuckerberg right. or someone like that, right? But in some countries, it would be too risky. Mm -hmm. And it shows a lot about what the cultural mm -hmm. attitudes are because all mothers care about their children, right? right? They, they want the best for their children. So if they think this is the best, then the culture probably prizes entrepreneurship. But it, it, it's a fluid thing because so much information is spreading now that um, maybe wasn't available before to certain cultures as the world opens up more. I mean, one of the other interesting things I found is just in, in um, working on tiny business, some of the entrepreneurs I originally interviewed two or three years ago and going back to them, some of them are living in entirely different countries. And I almost wonder if the whole idea of countries is gonna go away. I'm wondering if the idea of jobs is gonna go away and if the idea of countries will, because for very young people, borders are very fluid. Mm -hmm. Right. They don't. Right. I, I I don't think they buy into that idea that much. They're moving. I've, I've actually written place. about that topic. That uh, oh, you have. Yeah, that I I see the an erosion happening here, um, and it kind of boils down to this um, this question, the central question: Are we uh, relatively better off with more countries in the world or fewer countries in the world? And if we have more countries in the world, then that creates more. Uh, e experimental countries where you can try new things and right. test things out. We're, we're having somebody on from the Charter City Institute later in the year, a month or two, I think. And and that's kind of their whole thing. It's you, you set up, it's cities, but the idea is it's sort of like a nation state that can experiment with its own laws and you compete for a tax base. It's, you know, so so you can have a country that's otherwise totally laissez-faire, but maybe they have like universal health care or that there are almost no regulations at all or the state handles almost everything. Like you have this broad range of experimentation and people just pick where they want to live and they don't have to operate through the political mechanisms in their country in order to enforce changes they want to see. Yeah, if you um, if you think about uh, an experimental nation state that was just an island down in the Caribbean, um, if all it offered was cheaper taxes uh, or more freedom, that's probably not a long term uh, attractor. So something that would attract people long term, um, it would probably solve some temporary problems. But you want something that's based on a cause, something uh, that's that's more. Uh, long range than just uh, uh, these short term issues. Um, and so uh, I've, I've played around with this idea that we need uh, global authorities for more and more issues. Like we don't have a, a global authority for social media right now. Uh, we don't have anything that's an overarching uh, authority that can say, no, you can't do that or set policies or anything. So if you started an individual nation state to, to do that, uh, that would that would be their responsibility. You bring the experts from all over the world, a privacy uh, policy group or something like that. So, so yeah. Elaine's third book could be the one person million dollar country. Yeah, oh my there. God. <laughs> well, there you go. I don't know. One problem with these things is you think about um, countries evolve for a reason, right? We don't even really know what it was originally, but somehow they took shape and maybe there's a purpose that we're kind of missing out on. And the yeah, other thing was... is all the megalomaniacs. When you think of all the evil dictators in the world, yeah. you know, what would happen with some of these countries, it, it, with these experimental countries? Because I don't think human nature has really changed very right. much. It all changed in 1648 with the Treaty of Westphalia. Um, that's in, uh, in Europe, it solved 
some of the freedom of religion issues. It solved some of the land issues. But the main thing it did is it recognized one country's ability to sign treaties with another country. And that created what we know today as the nation state. And the nation state is basically what all of our countries are today. And uh, uh, so uh, is that going to last for another 1,000 years, or are we going to have some transition along the way? I, I doubt it's going to be in place another 1,000 years. So um, so what does the next transition look like, and, and who causes that to happen? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question. And, you know, what, what would be the what would dictate who lives in which country? You know, is it, I, I think a lot of it now is it's like uh, people's ethnicity, the people that live in right. that one area, but would that be what the glue that holds people together it would be, you know, people who believe in low government or something right. like that, you know, it, that that's, that's, it will be very interesting to see because what people say and what they actually do are two very different things. That's one exactly. thing. Yeah, and there's, there's I always talk what they do, not what they say. There's lots of issues around do your citizens need to be resident in the country or can they be virtual citizens? And um, and then China's experimenting with this whole process of gamifying citizenship, which brings up a whole bunch of other uh, possibilities. Uh, upsides and downsides. And, and as countries, most countries are good at punishing people for bad behavior, but they're not good at incentivizing them for good behavior. And uh, and so what constitutes good behavior and who gets to decide that? <laughs> uh, it, it's as, as uh, tricky as what constitutes bad behavior and who, who decides who gets punished. Um, so a lot of these issues we're, we're going to continue to wrestle with for thousands of years. So yeah. <laughs> it was funny because I, at one point I was thinking about this, this whole thing about good behavior versus bad behavior. And I was like, what were, like, what happened to the women that were really independent, like 400 years ago? And then as I was researching it, I came across this article. It was like, oh, they were the witches. They got right. burned. No. <laughs> Like, yeah. Okay. You know, you're not in the not uh, cooking in the kitchen, taking care of babies, then you get burned. Yeah. Um, so you, you, there's a big risk of that that the the powerful people get to control all the other right. people, right? Uh, by right. being the ones who decide who's good and who's bad. Yeah. Well, this has been terrific. Yeah. Is, are there is there uh, anything you want to sort of leave our audience with uh, in the closing minutes here? Yeah, that one nugget. That one nugget that's worth a million dollars. Drop it now. Well, the one nugget that's worth a million dollars is to actually show up for your business if you want to do it. That's one of the things I found in uh, interviewing yes. all these entrepreneurs is they're not just visionaries who have a really big idea and dream about it for years and years. They they have a bias towards actually doing it and making themselves vulnerable, trying things, not worrying so much if everybody loves it or doesn't love it right out of the starting gate. There's a lot of experimenting and underneath all the successes, there are also failures, but they keep on going. And no matter what you want to do, whether it's a business or a creative work, you, you have to show up for it. Um, viewing it as a practice is a good thing where I, like I do yoga and martial arts and both have this thing in common where you, you, you show up on different days and some days you feel 
terrible. Some days you feel good and you never know which days it's going to be or which days you're going to have a breakthrough. And a business is like that too. Um, so if you keep showing up, that that's a recipe for moving ahead with it. And, and that's all you can really do. Yeah. Yeah. So basically there's an open opening for the world's first unicorn solopreneur. Yeah. There's an opening. So and you, I'll be, I want to write about it. So if you are that unicorn, <laughs> get in touch with me. Yeah. <laughs> Bitcoin, Bitcoin has no employees. And I thought that's kind of, and it's a company. I'm not certain about that. You know, I'm not an expert on crypto, but. Well, there's DAOs as well, distributed autonomous organizations, which are sort of like not even a company at all. It's, it's like an algorithm, but it's kind of set up as a company and, and theoretically could function as one and maybe even like hire people or there could be employees or money made. Uh, but uh, so far, none of that's really panned out, but it's, it's definitely an interesting possibility, something to, to keep you up. The, the no, the no employee billion dollar. Uh, oh my yeah, gosh. Business. Yeah. Think about that. Then like, or maybe jobs, companies and countries yeah. all go away. What an yeah. interesting world that would be that new would things. Be bring up to organize us, but what would they be? Who yeah. knows? I, I encourage anybody listening, you please feel free to write to me. I, I, um, I'm under my full name, which is in the show notes on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. I love hearing from people and I do write back and I love to know what you're thinking about because it makes me a better reporter. If I know what questions you have, I, I know, uh, you know Thomas raised a great point about they're not really being a manual on how to create a million dollar one person business. And I, I and I'm not going to ever write it because every business is different. And you'll see from yeah. reading the book that there's a learning, a continual learning process that goes into anything and it's different for every business. Um, but I, but I, that said, I'm willing to provide specifics on things that you might have questions about. Right. Yeah, as soon as you write that, then we're going to have the first AI-run business. That's a million-dollar business. Yeah, that's what I say. Is yeah, the, the the million-dollar no-person business. Yeah, and then the the, the AI-run country right. will have the AI-run countries as well. So we, we've got books for you to write for the rest of your life. There you yeah, go. I love it. I love it. Really. Good ideas. Yeah, right, fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. This is fun. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.